Welcome to Honest Retail, the weekly podcast that dishes out the truth about the latest news, trends, and blunders from the CPG, consumer, and retail industries. Now, here are your hosts, Cameron McCarthy, Taylor Foxman, and Carlton Fowler. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of Honest Retail. Uh, So excited uh, to have the snack oracle herself, Andrea Hernandez, on the episode today. Andrea, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Um, I was was wondering maybe if we could start uh, with a little bit about your background um, and just kind of going into how you got to where you're at now, um, what Snackshot's all about for anybody who hasn't heard about it, um, and just give people a little bit of background on yourself to start. Yeah, so I, my name is Andrea Hernandez, and I started Snackshot back in um, fall of 2020. And my background is in marketing. So I've worn across like the past decade, I've worn a lot of different hats. So I've done copywriting, e-commerce, I've done PR, and I've sort of worn every hat that goes into like building a brand, uh, like behind the scenes. So that's sort of like my background and the insight that I use to create sort of the counter, (laughs) the anti uh, of what I had been doing for the past decade, Um, but particularly in food and beverage, um, just because there's been such an influx of of brands over the past um, couple of years. And that sort of drew my attention where we're starting to see sort of the goopification of like you know, things that to me felt kind of inherent. (laughs) And I felt like I wanted to sort of offer space to kind of push back and be like, okay, cool. Like, chill. Like, you know, you're offering me a meditation in a can, but it's not like I'm going to be like, you know, getting tongued down by the Dalai Lama. Right. So like, just sort of the background of Snapshot started as a way of parsing through the noise and curating the space and seeing like unpacking the trends and kind of seeing where is this coming from? Is this something that's, you know, really a worldwide thing or is this like just specific to a region, et cetera? And I think that because I'm not based in the U.S., it was easier for me to to see it that way as like less of a myopic view, which, you know, U.S. tends to have that. (laughs) So to me, it was easy to sort of like connect the dots. And that's sort of how it came to be that I started picking up on trends before they hit mainstream. And that's where the whole Oracle um, like, I guess branding comes from, but also like, I wanted it to be like, not your average trade publication. I kind of wanted to be like, what if shit posting met, like, you know, like an insights, like publication where we don't take ourselves too seriously. Cause I feel like this industry kind of felt like a circle dirt too. the same kind of people just lauding. And it's like, guys, it's like a fucking snack. You know, it's not like we're like, you know, finding some breaking like science thing that's like you know gonna save the world um and so I came up with the parody um like aspect of it so like the persona of a snack boy and like what defines a snack boy which is for those who don't know fuck boy needs (laughs) arrow one market um that kind of person that spends too much time deciding between like cbd and nootropic or you know adaptogen beverage, et cetera, instead of like maybe spending a little bit more time like on therapy or something. Um, So I just wanted to kind of spoof the trend of like, not really a trend, but the movement of food and beverage as signalers as well. Um, And yeah, like it started off as a newsletter, but it quickly pivoted into uh, a community. (laughs) So we have people from you know, the CMO of Pepsi and all the, like, these big people, like, you know, the founder of, of Oatly and all these people from, like, you know, higher up in the industry to, you know, people in de- design and, and marketing and PR, as well as just, like, average people who are, like, yeah, I'm just here for the snack content. Um, but, yeah, it's evolved into, I guess, like, what I call my cult, <laughs> where we are all about worshiping sexy pantry items and sultry snack. Um but yeah, that's sort of the TLDR of Snackshot. <laughs> yeah, and anybody who doesn't um, subscribe to the newsletter, it's definitely a must. Like, it, it's just the the copy um, and the and the creative that goes along together together, and how you kind of marry the two uh, is super interesting. And to the point now where it's like, if I see a Snackshot issue come out, 
I know it's a few months till I see, I start seeing some brands come out with like kind of similar fonts, similar creative. And so you're definitely ahead of the curve and in influencing a lot of the trends that I think we're going to see here over the next couple of months and next couple of years. Um, so usually how we start is going over some brands that caught our eye. Uh, obviously this is a great segment for you, Andrea, but we'd love to know, cause you were obviously at uh, Expo West too. What were your thoughts about the show? What caught your eye and, and was there any brands that stood out and, and what was your honest opinion about it at the end of the day? So if you read my latest issue, which um, I make the case for Expo West as like sort of losing its relevancy in terms of like, you know, what's actually novel. I think that at Expo West, if you're um, finding brands there, most likely it's not something that's new. It's more about like, you know, like uh, a brand that's caught up on a trend and it's like, you know, trying to, I guess, like, I feel like what I'm trying to say is like, if you want to really look at what's the future of the industry, that's like Expo West is not where to find it. Like the fact that, you know, people are spending upwards of like $90,000 on a booth. Like the only people that can justify that are like bigger, like brands or brands that have like some venture money behind it, or at least a few years going before, like you make that decision, like as a new founder, you're not going to be able to afford that. Um, and my honest thoughts is that at this point, those kinds of like uh, expensive conferences and boot shows are a way of gatekeeping in a sense where it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of pricing out um, founders, particularly diverse founders that are always like the ones that are going to be lacking of like venture funding, et cetera. So I feel like to me, the, it's, it, it was good to be able to go to Expo and then do South by Future of Food right after because I was very surprised about like all the innovative stuff that's actually happening there. Like, like really groundbreaking, like, like realistic, like here's how we change um, food systems for the better. And that it wasn't that like hyped up, you know, conference, whatever it was actually like a free thing to attend. Um, and just like the different energy from like the overhype looks like a unicorn vomited all over, you know, this conference, like convention center. And it's all the same sort of like, uh, you know, the same thing that you see where it's like, I feel like everybody has a DTC pastel thing going on, but not, not to be like, you know, shedding on the brands that were there. I'm just like being realistic. I was like, I didn't really find anything that really was like, wow, like I've never seen this before. It's like, yeah, I kind of wrote about this like two years ago. So it's like, to maybe it's just me, but to me, it was like less about like anything that I found new or novel, but more about like, yeah, this this just feels like it's like just like a trend going into mainstream, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I can, I can see how it, it's definitely, it's, there's some gatekeeping that goes and in, in, inhibits some brands from showing that, you know, are truly innovative or, or kind of a lot newer than the brands that are there. I mean, like even the brand I was going to mention today was a brand I didn't mention at Expo, but I tried it for the first time there and now they're available at my local Whole Foods. So I bought a ton this week, but it's like De La Kai, which I know you've, um, which you've highlighted a few times, which like, awesome branding, great product, but it comes from a larger company called Here Studio, which has capital and, and branding experience and design experience behind them. And they're able to push out something relatively quickly that an individual or two kind of owned brand just isn't going to be able to compete with. So to call that an emerging brand on the same level as someone who's kind of slowly building their business is definitely, you know, difficult. And, and Expo West, you know, is probably not the best show to go out there and highlight it, uh, you know, especially for the costs associated. Um, well, there's a reason I hosted a spoof of Expo West. Like <laughs> I, I, I did it that like on Thursday and it was so funny because a lot of people made the trip from Anaheim into LA. And I, the reason why I did it is because like I, I, I wanted sort of like to prove that we're at this point where it's like, we should be um, thinking these brands just came out of a pandemic, right? Especially the ones that started during 2020. Like we should be finding ways to support these founders in any way possible and specifically these institutions, right? Like the National Expo Conference, whatever. You would think that they would have taken into consideration like, fuck, we just come from a pandemic. Like, how do we support the smallest emerging founders that, you know, are not, maybe are not able, gonna be able to like showcase their stuff, obviously because of cost limitations, et cetera. The founder of Droplet actually like, posted like a message or something an interaction that she had of like expo west when it was canceled and how hard it was for like her to get her refund back and this was like 
in 2020, right? So I feel like these these programs or like these conferences, whatever, I don't think that they're really in pro of, you know, highlighting um, the diverse emerging founders that they should be focusing on. And instead it's like, you know, it's pay to play, which I think that it's in a way archaic where it's like, we should be able to use like the dynamics that we have available to find ways, whether it's to sponsor or to give some sort of grant or fund or that people can apply. And, and, and you're starting to see that, that like whole movement, like be disrupted. And what I mean is like, you're starting to see like Target, for example, launch their own incubators of emerging brands, which like, I don't have to go to Expo West anymore if I'm the one that's incubating these emerging founders. It's a reason why Whole Foods is doing it. It's a reason why GoPuff is doing it. It's a reason why Foxtrot is doing it. So to me, it was more about like, I think that we're starting to see the decay of the relevancy of these types of expos. And also like the fact that there were like almost non-Gen Z representation there it was a lot of elder millennial Gen X and above. I don't know if you noticed the same thing, but to me, it was like a, a stark difference. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think I, I think those are all good points. CJ, I'd, lo I'd love to loop you in here, like as an investor who's always looking downstream, you know, for new deal flow and new brands to come in that are obviously going to differentiate your portfolio versus everything else that's out there in the market. Um, do you kind of draw any of the similar conclusions or, or are the brands that are there kind of in that necessary, you know, phase for you guys where smaller brands kind of just don't make sense for venture yet. I mean, smaller brands are, are making sense for venture less and less. I, I actually, I want to take a step back and, you know, you, you, you highlighted something so interesting, Andrew, where you basically described like a Cambrian explosion of brands that have happened, you know, as, as you started, uh, you know, highlighting this space. I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you see the ecosystem evolving from here. Are, are we also going to have, like, to, to continue the metaphor, a major extinction event as, as a lot of these brands run out of funding um, and, and, and don't hit the kind of critical mass and scale they need to keep going? So, like, will, that, will we go through a period where the, the creativity that's been kind of expressed in the form of brand and product in the last couple of years is, is kind of, uh, you know, goes through a selection process and we start to mm -hmm. see what, what actually has some staying power and perhaps can, can you know, you know, un, take large yeah. and larger amounts of venture. How, how do you see that? Oh yeah. I have so many thoughts about this because I've talked to, to so many founders about this. Um, one, I think eventually, you know, market consolidates and you saw it with like the boom and the bust of heart seltzer, for example, where it's like, you, you can only have so much options, right? You can only have, and to me, it's like when I pose the question of like, okay, cool, we're going to have what, like a hundred thousand plus plant-based alternatives. Like that's not gonna, like, that's not going to work out. And you see too, like Beyond Meat also expanding into like the category of snacks because like their sales have like stalled. They've lost all these like restaurant accounts uh, to like their competitor impossible, et cetera. So I feel like, like you're starting to see sort of that like slow um, in like the categories that have been like the trendiest. Um, and two, it's so interesting that you say that because it, I do believe that we haven't really found like these things are not like, you know, adaptogenic cookie dough isn't really going to disrupt Pillsbury, right? Like it's not really gonna like overhaul that entire thing. And I think a lot of these people are chasing trends or like riding the coattails of a trend, but not, uh, not many of them are focusing on like, what's really replacing, what's like going to be something that I can replace, or that's going to improve on my life. That's going to be like, sort of like a daily habit or something that I can permanently replace a legacy brand um in my pantry right and it's so funny i had this uh founder who was telling me like they wanted to have a pep uh, uh like a pep chat before they were like gonna go and and present um like to some vc because they were raising like their their seed round and they were like so nervous they're like i'm so nervous that i'm not going to be appealing enough to this vc people because my my olive oil isn't functional and I was like, I need you to pause and just realize like how ridiculous that sounds because yeah, there's, you know, THC and CBD olive oil and sesame oils and, you know, hot CBD, hot sauces, whatever. But the average consumer is not like going like about their way 
to replace like, you know, whatever average brand or whatever brand that they have in olive oil for in, in lieu of adaptogenic olive oil, not, not anytime soon, right? So I think that there is sort of that, like, again, it's like a hype circle jerk where it's like, oh yeah, you know, we're disrupting this. And it's like, yeah, but like you go to like middle America and you like tell, try to tell someone like you should buy this, like, you know, tub of adaptogenic cookie dough. And they're going to be like, why? Like, I'm actually starting to see a pushback of like, I don't want to have my, my snacks don't have to have a function. Like I just want to have indulgence for indulgence sake. And I posted about this brand that launched this week called Foops yesterday that they're literally branding themselves as like not healthy. (laughs) They're like, we're just like, we're, we're, we're just a snack. And Gen Z in particular, the people that I've like talked to, even just founders, like the founder of Pizzazz, they're like, we don't care about that this has like nootropics or adaptogens, whatever. Like what is just like the utility of this like food and beverage, whatever, like uh, Leisure Project, that's like a Web3 beverage uh, brand that's like Gen Z, like founders, they, their approach was like, we just want to have a beverage that's like better hydration for us and that's it. So I think that we're not not necessarily saying it's going to be an extinction, but I do think that there's going to be sort of like a counter movement of like like it's it's gotten ridiculous, right? I saw a beverage uh, that hasn't launched yet that says like, oh, this is like hydrogen nootropic CBD beverage, and it feels like you're like entering this sort of like mad libs where I. I think that everything that I do as parody is becoming reality in a way where it's like wait is this like a simulation or what's going on like I made a meme uh last year that there was going to be a plant-based alternative raising a hundred million like series like uh their seed series whatever and then literally this year there was a a a plant-based brand that raised a hundred million in their series a (laughs) like it just feels like like, I don't really even understand, you know, how these valuations are even like taking place in the, like, like in the first place, like how, how this is even like manifesting itself, but it does feel that we've reached sort of like a point of like, well, we can either continue with this, like with, with, we, we're the kind of society that literally made almond milk unsustainable, right? Like almond milk's been canceled, you know, oat milk's the new thing. Um, but like, is it just going to be this cycle where we're just like overhyping something like, activated charcoal was huge for like what five years and then it like just like flopped so I don't know I think time will tell but for sure I feel like there's definitely like sort of like a counter movement going on and also like that you're going to start to see like more consolidation and yes there's going to be brands that are just not going to make it (laughs) well I mean I I think there's going to be thousands of brands that aren't going to make it because you know know, one of two things has to give right I, I either this entire like military industrial complex built around scale that is built on a fundamental insight that that the average consumer i heard you use the word the average consumer you know insofar as that exists like the average consumer likes consistency repeatability and as you know yanni pointed out so succinctly the last time he was on here they really just care about taste you know and, and then everything else can be a very distant you know two through ten either that has to change um, or, you know, the, the, the five to 10,000 new brands that kind of have just popped out out of nowhere in the last five years, like 90% of them have to die. Um, and, and I noticed you were on a panel with Cantino and, and Craven, and like the, the only way around that is if you actually fundamentally change the business model. And the only way that I see the business model can be fundamentally changed is through this notion of tokenomics, this, this idea where like typically, in, in like a let's go grow a brand cycle that is like typical venture backed it's okay I created something okay for some reason these power users are are matriculating towards this and power users buy more they evangelize more they they deal with growing pains better they don't get too mad when things go wrong and like the whole cycle of ventures predicated on these power users if you as a brand can prove that you have them then you can have seed funding and once you have seed funding you can scale your business to the point where you can bring your costs down to the point where you hope your marginal utility to a non-power user exists. You continue to scale, continue to scale, and then eventually you're acquired. Like in a world where you actually turn those power users into something other than revenue, um, and you kind of realign around around relentlessly solving for their problems, you, you might have a, a universe where you have many more smaller but sustainable businesses 
um, and then not quite as many kind of go for that, you know, brass ring. I'm going to dump as much VC money on this as possible, try and create exit velocity and become body armor. And that's, I, I think that's what we're going to about to find out over the next five or 10 years is, is whether or not the business model itself is going to change enough to actually support this larger ecosystem of brands. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think a lot of times too, like we're, we're all, you know, four so down the rabbit hole of CPG and, and new trends and stuff that, you know, we'll see stuff on Twitter and LinkedIn and, you know, we'll be like, this is super interesting, but we don't take the approach of like the everyday consumer and really think like, does this actually have legs in the mass or club or conventional channels? And I don't think enough of the brands actually take that approach either to figure out what's the growth strategy past, you know, their local Whole Foods chain or past Erewhon or past Lazy Acres. Like, is this actually going to have legs past that? So it can be a big company like we've talked about, like a Liquid Death or like a Lemon Perfect. So definitely super interesting uh, conversation and a lot of things to, to keep on track of. Let's kind of go back to brands that caught our attention um, and brands that, you know, have definitely kind of stood out over the last uh, week. I did mention De La Kai for me. Um, Taylor, I know I kind of skipped over you last week, so I apologize. What's the what's the brand that kind of caught your eye over the last week? <laughs> I'm still, I still feel the burn. Um, I know. No, I, this has all been, I just love listening. I'm like, I just am, all I'm missing is potato chips. I, this is a very great conversation. I just love being a spectator in the background, listening in. Um, Andrew, it's great to have you on. This is awesome. Um, I, um, I heard from the team at Bali, B-A-W-I, which is a new aqua fresca on the market. Um, they are, I think it's a sparkling low calorie aqua fresca. The guys are based, two founders, um, based out of Austin. Uh, I, try, I, I haven't really tried too many of those products, but I was able to try. They sent me um, their wine and I tried the pineapple flavor. I think it's called the La Pina and it was delicious. Um, so kind of a new, obviously it's not like a new category overall, but for me, I haven't really tried too many of them. I thought it was very refreshing. Um, yeah, just like what they're doing. seems like they're kind of strategically smart starting in Austin, um, building a community there, building distribution there, and then growing hopefully sooner than later into new markets. Um, but was just impressed with the founders and with the liquid. So. Awesome. Yeah. I think, um, I've, I've talked to the founders a few times. I think they're going to be new customer, new customers of ours in the next few weeks. So excited to work with closely with the brand and, and the two founders over there. Definitely good guys. Um, uh, Andrea, we'd love to kind of know a brand that's caught your eye over the last week. Obviously you have an influx of a ton of brands. Uh, I'm assuming it's not going to be a new tropic Gatorade based off your, your Twitter feed today, but we'd love to know a brand that kind of caught your eye and that you're interested in trying here. Um, yeah. So just uh, to comment on Bowie, yeah, I've been talking to them for a while, uh, got to meet them while I was in Austin. We actually had them at our Expo West spoof event, um, and a lot of people became instant fans. I do think that they have an actual quality product. Um, there's so many brands, but one of the ones that I've been very impressed, it's not, not US based, but it's, I feel like it's taking over like Asia pretty quickly um, since they launched and it's founded by the CFO of Kranz Heinz in Indonesia. The brand is called Outside. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me about it, like just the, the branding overall, like it's, it has its own like little like story. It's, it's like weird, but it's like, these like characters that they have and that they like transcend both like the real world and like their own fictional world. And what I love about the approach that they've been doing, like all the activations that they're having, they're not just sticking with like barista cafes kind of like, like how you've seen Oatly and all these other like brands approach that, but they've been doing a lot with like tea houses. Um, and so like that, it becomes sort of like the bubble tea uh, matcha like replacement of like milk and their activations have just been like the chicest like super like like aesthetics are on point like looks like a fashion editorial like magazine snapped pictures of it so I don't know over the last week like I've been just obsessing over their strategy and how they're quickly expanding from like Japan to Korea like after like launching Indonesia I feel like it's like just so grown, grown so quickly. I don't know if it's because the guy obviously had like, you know, an extensive network, but yeah, it's been very interesting to see sort of all the alt uh, movement that's happening in, in Asia, but yeah, outside is 
the latest obsession of mine. Yeah, the other plant-based milk you shedded a little bit of light on um, this week that I thought was super interesting was Palms, the coconut milk. I thought that packaging uh, was super like, you know, 1950s, 60s, like LA and really liked that branding for sure. Um, so it's interesting to see how this crowded space and, and these brands are starting to differentiate themselves. Um, CJ, how about you? Um, I, I ran into the United States of soda guys um at at expo west and it kind of reminded me that i've always been in love with that packaging um but had never actually tried the product um so they sent me some and i was like really pleasantly surprised by um by by the taste in the product i might i might be a personal drinker convert um i like that a lot the other thing that i've been kind of obsessed with lately and then i'll turn this into a brand is like how how you can look at like micro fulfillment centers potentially as also uh, retail facing, you know, as, as, you know, as, as, you know, the supply chains get more complicated, especially on the alcohol side where we invest, where pretty quickly UPS um, FedEx will give you like flat bulk rates for shipping, but they kind of run this weird, like cartel like pricing for alcohol, which changes drastically depending on the distance that you're shipping. Um, so I've been, you know, really playing around and obsessed with this idea of like, Hey, if you're a, you know, a D to C heavy wine brand, um, what if you, what if you basically combine the idea of urban tasting rooms as micro fulfillment centers and theoretically that should technically almost pay for themselves through shipping savings. And then you get this added boost of free customer acquisition, um, you know, and that's on trend with like the blending of D to C and retail. And lo and behold, um, this company that, that we're, we're looking at called In Good Taste, which I think does a really, really interesting job of, of single serving wine um, and approaching the consumer that way is, is, is actually penciling up the same math. So um, that, that brand, I, I was very interested. In. I was surprised by the quality of wine as, as we're going through the due diligence process. Awesome. Yeah, no, a lot of, uh, we don't usually spend this time kind of going over new trends and new products. So um, I, I'm glad that we kind of let this uh, segment breathe a little bit more this week, because I think there was a lot to touch, especially with Andrea here. Um, so let's go over kind of our first topic, um, which is something we touch on quite a bit, right? It's, it's how is big food and beverage um, innovating and kind of, we talked about Pepsi a few weeks ago doing their draft, um, their draft soda. And I think we were kind of overall positive on that. I know that some of the guys from BevNet started to post about it. And then we started to realize kind of the amount of sugar that was in that product. And it was a little bit shocking, but this week, I think everybody, you know, Instagram and Twitter feed popped up with the Pepsi and IHOP, um, collaboration to make a maple syrup cola. Um, this to me does not really scream kind of the same sustained innovation. This is more just like, Hey, listen, let's get, you know, some, uh, some kind of crazy headlines and maybe some, some, uh, people trying our product for the novelty of it. Um, but Andrea, we obviously haven't had you on before, but would love to know kind of like your thoughts on how big food and beverages approach innovation. And do you look at stuff like this as just, they are just shooting in the dark, have no idea what they're doing? Or do you look at something like this as, hey, this is just something that they know, this is going to be a PR stunt, it's just something for a short-term run, and this is not something we can necessarily categorize as innovation for them? Well, first of all, if you've been here long enough, as in if you've been a Snapshot follower long enough, um, highly recommend our Instagram page because my memes are on fire. I've done a couple of them spoofing like these kinds of like drops from big food where it's like that meme of that guy looking at the butterfly and it's like, is this? And it's like, you know, they turn like Debbie cereal, whatever, little Debbie cereal into like a snack bar. And it's like, oh, is this innovation? But, you know, like I actually posted about this um, when it came out and I got confirmation from someone who used to work at Pepsi. They were like, yep, that's exactly why they do it. Um, so Oreo does this really well. Um, there's a New York Times piece about it. Oreo puts out like the most insane flavors like out there for a reason. They want you to be nostalgic for their OG um, Oreo. And it has proven to be successful. It drives up the, the, the sales of the original um, Oreo flavor. So in similar like, I guess like tactic, I put it out there that I'm pretty sure they're taking from the Oreo page book um, that they're putting these things out. They're not just for like the PR sake of it, but also because it makes people nostalgic for the original 
um, Pepsi flavor. So if you do go to like the thread, you can find the person who's like, yep, like this is actually like, like accurate. So I think that they're smart as in they, they, they're, they know what they're doing, but at the same time, like, I just feel like, uh, I've made the bold prediction that, um, you know, uh, alcohol and seltzer is going to become the lifeline of these companies. There's a reason why Coca-Cola shed half of its portfolio. So over 200 brands in 2020. So a lot of these, these brands are like these big legacy brands are getting like, a, like massive shakeups because like, you know, you're a soda company and the trend isn't going anywhere that so seltzer sales have out outpaced soda, right? Like how sugar, especially with glucose monitoring, et cetera, becoming a lot more, uh, mainstream that there's a lot of like counter glucose spike like you know sugar taboo in a sense like you know you're not going to be drinking a 20 grams of sugar uh, of like refined sugar or whatever in a, in a can right so like I did this in December like that OG iconic vintage 1950s like Santa Claus that's always like had a had a bag of like coca-colas whatever so like I photoshopped it and I put like all these like Topo Chico bottles instead, because I, I do think that they're they're holding on to, you know, Topo Chico, uh, but, uh, Pepsi has bubbly, like they're they're really trying to figure out like, okay, we're going through an identity crisis as a soda company <laughs> where this, these, these new generations are not really, you know, um, wanting to have our products anymore. So so that's kind of my take on it. I think Pepsi knows what it's doing. And I think that they're trying to, you know, use that as clout, but at the same time to try to get people back on the, on the OG Pepsi track. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that they're smart about this kind of approach. They understand that it's going to generate buzz, but it's not necessarily long-term innovation in the pipeline. Um, Taylor, what, what were your kind of thoughts on the launch? And, and is this something you're going to rush to the store and, and go try? <laughs> For sure. I mean, I usually just drink diet or diet soda, just to be clear, but uh, this looks delicious. I mean, I was surprised um, <clears throat> at all just the sugar counts of all these things that we've been seeing over the past few months. It's insane. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Andrew. I mean, I, I did, I've seen actually a lot on TikTok around people doing like just demos of all the Oreos, just building on your point. Um, you know, there's so many different flavors. Not everything's going to stick. I also think too, it's an interesting, just you know, best practice of like seeing what, what does land, right? Like from my perspective, Andrea too, I come from, you know, communications, PR, et cetera. And part of it to me does feel a little bit stunty. Um, but then when you kind of look into it, it's like, by the way, the fact that I missed Pepsi's Cracker Jack version, like I'm now really angry. <laughs> Cracker Jack it was my life and my childhood, like peeps, take it or leave it. But it seems like this is kind of just a continuation um, of what they've done around these kind of, you know, collaborative, super nostalgic drink options. And, um, you know, you never know some of them, if they, if people do resonate with it more than others, they may probably keep it for a little bit longer than expected. But I do think there is a PR stunty element to it. I, I do agree with Andrew. I think there is, you know, kind of that nostalgic point of view too, that, um, you know, clearly resonates. I mean, think about like, all like kind of the virality of what's picked up most on all these websites, like a Buzzfeed, it's all on the food and beverage side. A lot of it is just nostalgic based stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, it feels like a little stunty in line with what they've done before with peeps, Cracker Jack. Uh, but um, yeah, overall, I mean, again, I think I would have a heart attack if I tried this and that's coming from me. Um, but curious to hear people's thoughts and think it's interesting. And I agree. I think they know what they're doing and I think they'll continue doing these types of things for sure. Seem they seem to work and get a lot of press. Yeah, a hundred percent. CJ, CJ, I love like your thoughts on the premise of do you, you're obviously an investor in a lot of beverage brands. I actually feel like it's a technique that's not really leveraged by a lot of um, small or even medium tier uh, beverage brands enough where they have limited time offers that they integrate into their product set um, or they go for kind of a crazy over the top flavor to, to bring some um, some new buzz to them. I don't, I don't think we see a ton of innovation there. Olipop comes to mind sometimes, but we'd love to kind of know your thoughts on like, could this be replicated um, by more emerging brands to, to generate some more buzz and, and get some more LTOs and shelf space in store. I, mean, I, I think you'll, I think you'll see a couple companies kind of try and replicate this, but 
you also have to to take into account like where they are in the life cycle. Like if you're still you, you know spending ninety nine percent of your in, you know you know energy getting new shelf space, and the average consumer still hasn't tried your core brands, it's really difficult to justify um, using a lot of of precious marketing spend to get them to try a um, you know a brand that that perhaps you know isn't going to be a, a long term position on the shelf. So. When you look at it from Pepsi's perspective, they already have the push machine throughout their, their you know, their bottlers, pardon me, <clears throat> bottlers and distribution network and their partnerships with retail to, to know that they can execute getting this out on shelf at the same time as a marketing push. Um, and if, if smaller brands could do that, they wouldn't be small. Um, you know, where, where, where it can work is when you can, you know, to some degree have a, of a collaboration across ingredients where, you know, if you if, if you're particularly you know a particularly unique chocolate, you might be able to to partner with a you know a, a larger brand like like an Oatly, for example, to make a chocolate you know you know oat milk and push that out. But but I I think you won't see this. This is typical behavior you see in a little bit more mature brand cycle. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think it'll be interesting to see um, these larger companies continue to push out this type of innovation. Obviously, with the buzz that it's receiving, it's it's working. So um, I'll definitely you know, stay tuned to that. Um, let's move to a second topic. Um, a company we've touched on a few times um, over the last few episodes, but Instacart, um, they launched a pretty cool new feature um, in shoppable recipes. So think about when TikTok creators, especially like TikTok um, food creators, uh, create a recipe on TikTok, that um, video will now be shoppable. So they'll be able to add those ingredients directly to their Instacart. That is really awesome innovation, I think, and a great way to um, get new shoppers involved. I think the issue is, is that Instacart as a whole um, continues to see their valuation chopped up. And I think it's in a 40% uh, decrease over year over year now. And so we've obviously touched on a lot of tech platforms and we've talked about the boost that most of them saw because of 2020 and because of COVID and now figuring out what the new normal is. Um, so CJ, we'd love to kind of start with you on this side, on the investor side. What is your kind of view on a platform like this that is kind of cutting valuations and, and but still trying to pump out new innovation to get more shoppers on the platform? I mean, I, I think they probably staged this to to have both these announcements come out at the same time. Like, you know, I, I it it's not abnormal for brands and companies, especially like Instacart, that were so close to IPO. To experience the same um, valuation contraction that just about everything everything in the public markets has, you just, you can't you, you can't really avoid it, and especially on something like like Instacart when it was you know riding that that you know you know quarter over quarter, month over month, just growth 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 because of the pandemic, at a time when liquidity was high, valuations weren't really people's foremost concern. Like it just it it got overvalued and this is the market kind of naturally correcting itself. Um, everybody who was, you know, you know, in early is still fine. Um, I'd be really interested to see how some of the, you know, the preferred return language is going to affect this, but like they're, they're still a $40 billion company. They're still kind of, you know, at the forefront of this arms race, whether it's Instacart empowering grocery versus the big grocery chains trying to figure out themselves versus GoPuff versus DoorDash versus, you know, a lot of the, you know, the 15 minute delivery things, they're, they're all going to have to figure out what their swim lanes are. So I, I mean, I don't do this as a huge surprise. Like Instacart is worth less to a market that is a lot more careful in valuation today than it was a year ago. Um, and that's both a function of the pandemic and just what's happening in the capital markets. Yeah. And they did just launch kind of a turnkey, um, data platform for retailers as well um, to be able to market to their shoppers um, and set up delivery pretty much um, overnight um, using Instacart. So I thought that that was a cool announcement as well. But yeah, we'll see how these kind of inflated prices over the last year, two years pan out. Um, you, you also can, I mean, you can't IPO right now on top of, like if, if Andrea calls them snacks boys, I'll call the retail investors on Robin Hood, like, you know, you know, hood boys, like, like, you know, for, for two years, that, that's how we got the Beyond Meats and the Oatleys is like a bunch of retail investors being like, cool, I'm going to buy this IPO name. Um, and that was essentially using them as exit liquidity. Like that doesn't exist right now. So like, frankly, 
Instacart's, you know, if, if you believe that overall that COVID was, yes, it was a spike in the trend, but now we've just gone back to the natural trend line. And 10 years from now, more things are going to be bought on the e-commerce than are today, which I think is a very difficult thesis to argue with. Like this means this is a good thing for anybody who wants to get involved in Instacart now. So if they IPO at this price, awesome, but go buy some. Um, they, you know, they, they, they got properly, you know, wrist slapped with valuation and now they can go about being a company that's really trying to legitimately change the way people shop. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, Andrea, I'd love to know your thoughts kind of on, on kind of the idea of, of shoppable retail, but also kind of where the future of kind of online grocery fits into kind of your thesis, especially when it kind of comes to emerging brands. I think we see companies like GoPuff um, is obviously picking up a lot of traction with emerging brands. But kind of love your thoughts on on Instacart specifically, but then the general ecosphere too. Yeah, I would say I find it laughable that people think that this is some sort of innovation when it's like, yeah, I'm going to shop content from Delish.com, the pioneer woman, like good housekeeping. Like, you know, like these, first of all, these publications are super outdated, like for like the new generation Two, when it comes to online shopping, especially for groceries, most of the stuff that is being bought online is things that people are much, much more familiar with. Like the majority of shopping is still something that it's either buy online, pick up in store, or that people are, especially in our generation, like actually wanting to go and, and check out the, like through the aisles of the grocery stores, et cetera. Right. That's like, that's what I've looked into and like what the data supports. So like, to me, this is more about like, let's just create something that's like hypable, but like the people on TikTok are not going on delish.com, whatever, you know, like, like TikTok is such a like wild west. Like, I think that this is great, cool, you know, like, but the, you know, I think it's going to be more catered towards like maybe elder millennials, like, you know, like Delish, I don't think it's, it's, it's like a publication that's relevant to like younger, like audiences, if that makes sense. So I think that this is just like, like a way of saying like, yeah, we're in the know, whatever. I think, you know, social commerce is, is something that's very common outside of the US, like, um, you know, in Asia, in Latin America, you see this a lot too, where it's like the super app sort of behavior. I don't know if like US is getting there, um, especially because Gen Z is a lot of mobile first um, generation, similar to like the, the markets outside of the US, right? Mobile first with like everything you do, it's like within your mobile phone. This is why I always tell people like, if you want to see the future, like see what the emerging markets are doing and the behavior of like even websites becoming sort of obsolete um, when you have like, in-app purchase behavior um to me it's like it's 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 trying to get people to embrace a behavior that's something that's been going on in emerging markets for a while so that's my opinion on instacart and then overall i've been talking about curation as a service which is what i call SaaS is the new SaaS. Um, and i made a chart a year ago where i sort of unpacked like the different manifestations of it, whether it's IRL, which is the Foxtrots and the pop-up grocers, et cetera. And then you have the URL, the niche URL, which is like the multiverse, which is like a super niche uh, online marketplace that's just um, for uh, mushroom-based like food and beverage products that have adoptogens or whatever. And then you have the delivery ones, which is like, I put GoPuff in there um, that I call curation, um, utility-based curation. So it's something that you see also like delivery apps around the world, like Rappi and Gorillas, where instead of like, how did the, how does an aisle like translate into something that's online, right? Instead of like categorizing it by like orange juice, milk, dairy, whatever, it's being categorized by like utility. So it's like breakfast, lunch, uh, post-workout, et cetera. So GoPuff um, to me is gonna become sort of like the new AdWords and they know that. Um, and they've also, I think I mentioned earlier, they have now even their own sort of like uh, incubator for emerging brands, which I think is really, really smart. Um, so I think that they're also even helping sort of DTC native brands um, solve a problem that is demoing, right? A lot of these brands don't have like samplers, whatever, because it just doesn't make sense economics like wise to do it. So I feel like they've also played a big role in helping mitigate that like URL and IRL difference for like digitally native um, brands. I think that that this is happening for two reasons, that our generations are in a perpetuate state of discovery. Um, and this is why I think that this is like why it's leading to that like boom of all these brands coming out. 
Um, and then that, you know, the, the brand loyalty amongst our generation, both millennial and Gen Z is the lowest that it's been. Um, so like that we really haven't found like a brand, like who's being loyal to Sir Kensington, right? Like nobody really like cares as much of like, what's the new next new best shiny thing. And so like the need for curation is inherent. And also like the, the loss of trust in like these big marketplaces, like the unbundling of Amazon marketplace, for example, where people, you know, they don't trust the reviews that are found there, like the, the, the exploration and the discovery process is, is like broken. And the way that I see curation and how I've defined it and the multiple pieces that I've written around this is, uh, is removing friction around the process of discovery. And I think this is why the likes of Foxtrot, which by the way, I think it's opening 75 stores by the end of the year. They just opened, they're opening three in Austin, just opened three in Boston. And I think the reason why they're able to like be successful in what they do is that they're good at mixing the familiar with what's new. And they have been able to blend it um, in a way that makes sense for both millennials, but also for the younger generations. And it also doesn't alienate the older ones. And, you know, Papa Grocer, for example, is like a very niche one where it's like we're just focusing on we're the showcase. We're the ones who are like putting out like the first, like we're, we're bringing these companies like for the first time to shelves. And that's sort of like what they hone in. But I think it's a very interesting like space, like how you're seeing like the rise of the, the Instagram grocers, I call them grocer grams. And um, I wrote a whole article about this, like it trend that's happening where it's like people are opting off, like, why do I have to be on Instacart if I can use Instagram's tools to do the same thing, you know, that that would be like Instacart, which is like discovery. So there's been a lot of grocers that have been pivoting to Instagram and have been using collections as aisles. And they're aggregating their products in the same way that Dopoff and all these delivery apps are doing it. So I would definitely check that out because I feel like it's, it, we're, we're starting to see sort of like a very interesting, like uh, where people aren't relying on the third parties as much and they're taking sort of like their own matters into their own hands and leveraging the tools and technology uh, that's available. A good example, before I'm like, I just have so many examples, but I do want to say the guy who founded Depop, Simon Beckerman, if you want to see sort of an example of what I'm talking about, the best one is Simon Beckerman, the founder of Depop, recently released this app called Delhi Market. And if you want to see sort of more of what I'm talking about manifested itself, um, check it out. It's D-E-L-O-I Market. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> No, I mean, it's just a ton of uh, you know, valuable information. I think you brought up like a like one point that stuck out to me, right? Is the if Instacart is really afraid about losing some of their users to more native built into the app products, like like actually if TikTok and, and Instagram built out the products themselves, that's kind of the biggest thing because their biggest moat is the fact that they have all these shoppers. And so the reason why a lot of these grocery stores aren't going to go out and build their own internal solution, although they probably want to um, because of the percentage that Instacart takes, which then is going to show up, you know, in the percentage that they're going to have to mark up their product eventually. They're, it's just because the shoppers are, are using Instacart. So they don't want to rock that boat. So I think that that's an interesting point um, that if like Instacart does start to see some users declining, which I haven't seen kind of any evidence of that yet, but if that does start happening, that's the biggest issue to me because I think if the if the grocery saw Instacart users starting to dip, um, they would definitely jump on that opportunity to build more um, of their internal solutions so that they could actually own that delivery part of it themselves. Um, Taylor, we'd love to kind of kind of uh, get your thoughts on both the Instacart um, part of it and then anything that you know CJ and Andrea um, kind of went over as well. I mean, I, <clears throat> very interesting conversation overall. I have not much else to add to this. Um, I will say that um just off the top of my head i i felt similarly just around the the platforms that they they partnered with i'm going granular but i think you guys have had kind of a robust conversation around kind of the more macro stuff but on a micro level around kind of the the specific news at hand um i agree like i they it looks like they have a partnership with hearst um and so it's like delish country living etc and like i pioneer woman like i i no, nothing wrong with these platforms or with the pioneer woman or good housekeeping, but I, I too would be watching this if I were to have seen this, I guess, right? Um, and as you all know, I am a TikTok, TikTok passive watcher, 
not user per se, but I do watch a lot of the, the, the demos, the food and drink demos. Um, and I don't feel this partnership is really on brand or synergistic with the people that are using TikTok. Um, feels like they just wanted to find, quite frankly, like a wealthy media publisher um, to partner with and kind of just draw consumers over from one platform to another to purchase and just feels a bit off. Um, I don't dislike the idea per se, uh, because a lot of times too, whether it's like a drink recipe or food recipe, the things move, the, the videos move very, very fast. And they always have you like screenshot the recipe. And I'm like, I'm walking on a treadmill or I'm in the subway or I'm somewhere like, can't do that. <laughs> so I, I like generally the concept at hand. Um, I just think that who they chose to roll this out with TikTok and hers. I get it. It makes sense for TikTok and for hers. But I think I, I, I like the ideas that Andrea had said. I think, you know, there's other ways to do it where you can curate different aisles virtually through different more forward platforms that fit for that demographic, like an Instagram, for example. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's just my two cents on, on this. I like the, the general concept. I just don't think the partnership makes sense um, and would like to see it a little bit more modern modernize if they were to do this but i think it could work yeah we've mentioned the pioneer woman more times than any podcast should over the course of an hour but i do have to say for anybody like you're listening to this on your phone or you buy a computer if you search the pioneer woman's cpg brand that she launched a few years ago it is actually probably the the worst branding i've ever seen it's it's pretty hard to to match that um so i would definitely uh, check that out while we're on the topic a very random thought that popped in my head was was that launch she had a few years ago um i do not think we're gonna have enough time because we are coming up against the hour mark here for that third topic. But I think that's only because we went so deep um, into the topics and then kind of that first part. So um, this was a great episode. Andrea, thank you so much for um, joining us today. Would love if you could kind of share with the audience where they could sign up for the newsletter, how they get a hold of you, and um, come in anything else you'd kind of want to share with them. Yeah, no, yeah, you can go to uh, snackshot.sotsat.com to sign up for it. Um, and yeah, I think this was a really great conversation and I appreciate a good uh, riffing on the topic. And yeah, just thank you for having me again. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And we'll see everybody next week.